Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Rachel Everard talks with Professor Lord Martin Rees, the UK's Astronomer Royal. Over a long and distinguished career, Lord Rees has been in the vanguard of space science, and his research interests include galaxy formation, the multiverse, and the prospects for extraterrestrial life. In a fascinating conversation, the pair discuss a range of space-related topics, including why we should be putting robots into space instead of humans. Professor Lord Martin, it's a pleasure to meet you and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. We are talking about how we travel and the future of travel, particularly asking the question of should we regulate space? First up, I'd like to ask you, you are the UK's Astronomer Royal. What does that mean? What does your role involve? Well, it's a historical title and it used to be the person who ran the Greenwich Observatory, which was set up in 1675 um, as uh, uh, an observatory to... um, measure longitude and things of that kind. But in 1960 or thereabouts, it became possible to go to telescopes on remote and much better sites like the Canary Islands, Hawaii and Chile. And the Greenwich Observatory became a museum and was no longer a job for its director, the Astronomer Royal. But they kept the title as a sort of honorary title for a senior academic in the subject. So um, I'm uh, the honorary holder of the title. Of course, some people mix up astronomy and astrology and they say, do you do the Queen's horoscopes? And I have to say, well, I'm only an astronomer. Um, I've got no crystal ball. Um, all I will say is that uh, scientific forecasts are probably better than those of economists, but still not very good. It's a fantastic title nonetheless. And so what, if, if it's an honorary title, what does the role involve today? Well, I mean, I've been appointed because uh, I am active in astronomy. I've been a professor at Cambridge for many years, head of an astronomy institute in Cambridge, um, and uh, involved in a lot of outreach and writing books on astronomy, etc. So uh, I'm certainly someone who is committed to um, trying to extend the science of astronomy, promoted in the UK, and also to extend it uh, worldwide. The co-founder of the Centre for the Study of Existential Risks at Cambridge University. Yes. What are those ex- existential risks that you have been studying? Yes. Well, let me say that um, uh, when I stopped being full time as head of my institute and master of Trinity College, I, uh, with others, started up this centre to study extreme threats. Uh, One was thinking of um, climate change, biodiversity and misuse of technology and pandemics. And I have to say that COVID-19 has, in a sense, been a plus because people can't dismiss the kind of things we address, namely threats which spread globally as crazy doom-mongering, one's already happened and the worst could happen. And so we feel that compared to small risks like carcinogens in food and things like that, there's not much effort given to studying these potentially colossal threats, which are getting more serious as we're more empowered by technology and as the world is more interconnected. And we're seeing one example of this in COVID-19. But of course, uh, massive cyber attacks are another possibility and other massive effects that could cause 
societal disruption. So what we're trying to do is to use the expertise we can draw on in the UK, and particularly in the University of Cambridge, to see what we can do to minimise the um, likelihood of these disasters happening and how to cope with them if they do. And so that's one of my interests which has developed and our centre is now building up and uh, it's got limited funds now, but we hope it will be sustained as a permanent feature of our university. It certainly resonates. I've heard many times people talk about how COVID-19 was was a glimpse of the threat that climate change brings. Yes, well, of course, in a way, climate change is a slow motion version of COVID. Uh, COVID obviously was sudden and uh, the politicians had to notice it and pay regard to the experts, whereas in contrast, climate change is slow and insidious. So I like to say we're like the um, the frog in the uh, pot of water um, under a flame, uh, which is getting wa- warmer, and the frog is very happy until it's too late to save itself. And that's the kind of situation we are possibly in, unless we can enlist greater public momentum and political momentum for dealing with climate change. And of course, uh, at the time we're speaking uh, with the Glasgow COP26, this is a very timely and critical time for that subject. And is that why you think we should regulate space, if indeed you do think we should? Well, that's a big jump from what we were just talking about. But uh, um, uh, I think uh, we should bear in mind that space is something which has been of great practical value because we depend on it for uh, sat-nav, for communications, uh, for earth monitoring, for weather forecasting, etc. All these issues are are very important, but as an astronomer, I'm interested in uh, looking upwards as well as downwards. And um, as you probably know, we've got telescopes up above the atmosphere, above the blurring and absorptive effects of the Earth's atmosphere, and they have been crucial to uh, Um, learning more about the nature of the uh, universe and observing not just visible light, but infrared radio and uh, X-rays and gamma rays from the cosmos to study extreme events. So uh, the subject of astronomy and understanding the universe has advanced hugely, and that is in substantial measure due to the availability of observations made in space uh, away from the atmosphere. Yeah, apologies. I did make a big, a vast leap there. Um, I guess I was reflecting on thinking around how we regulate the high seas in a way and how we do that in a way that protects them ultimately, tries to at least, and and perhaps the parallels that could be drawn for space. Well, I mean, uh, of course, one issue which has had to become more acute with current plans to uh, bring internet to Africa and places by launching whole flotillas of small spacecraft into low Earth orbit. SpaceX has a plan to launch 40,000, and other companies are are doing similar things on a slightly smaller scale. This suggests that there will be maybe 100,000 smallish spacecraft in low Earth orbit, and this renders more serious the risk of collisions. This is something that's been worried about for a long time. If two spacecraft collide and break into fragments, then all the fragments remain in orbit for a long time. And if this happened too often, too many collisions, then you might end up with the part of space that these satellites are in being full of a lot of small fragments. And a fragment going at 17,000 miles an hour is um, very dangerous. Even 
a flake of paint or something like that could do great damage to a spacecraft. And so there is a genuine worry that if the number of debris particles in space starts to exponentiate, then we might get to a situation when low Earth orbit was not usable. And that would be a deprivation because it's crucially important for these the small satellites. And what impact would that have on something like climate change in terms of global temperature rise? Would it increase that, do you think? Well, no, it has zero effect on that, of course, but it does uh, inhibit our ability to have uh, spacecraft of the kind we need to monitor weather forecasting and and, uh, weather patterns and and climate change. I mean, all weather forecasting now depends hugely on data from space. So uh, we would risk losing all the everyday practical uses of space if we can't use low Earth orbits. Uh, We haven't talked yet about sending people into space, and that's, of course, a separate question. (laughs) <laughs> of course, and that's something that's very topical at the moment as we see celebrities and actors, in fact, going to space. What's your views on that? Space tourism almost? Well, one can't object to it if it's um, uh, billionaires who choose to spend money on that rather than building a big yacht or supporting a football team. Good luck to them. I feel that way about uh, what uh, Bezos does. Um, I think um, what's being done by SpaceX and um, Elon Musk's enterprise is uh, is much uh, more impressive and uh, more serious. Uh, he, of course, has already sent people into orbit, uh, four people for three days, and that, that's uh, much harder than just lobbing people up above the atmosphere for a few minutes. On the whole, I'm in favour of that, uh, but I'm in favour of it because I'm not in favour of human space flights being funded by governments, by um, um, the European Space Agency, or if I was an American, by NASA. Um, because as robots get better, the advantage of sending humans over sending robots minimizes, but the cost difference remains huge. And if people are launched into space by publicly funded entity, and if they're civilians, then of course, you've got to ensure that the safety measures are pretty stringent, and that makes it more expensive. And to take an example of what happened uh, in the United States, where they have launched, of course, many hundreds of people into space to go to the space station, then there were two failures of the space shuttle in 135 launches. And each of those was a big trauma in America. They stopped the program for three years to try and reduce the risks. But a less than 2% failure rate, which is what that represents, was in fact something well below what would be acceptable to uh, test pilots and adventurers. So my view is that I don't think any public money should be spent sending people into space. Uh, but on the other hand, if private sponsors want to have high-risk space adventures by the kind of people prepared to accept those risks, thrill-seekers of various kinds, then that's um, something which we should cheer on, just as we cheer on people who um, go to the top of Everest or the Antarctic or the ocean bed, places like that. Um, we should cheer on those who are... Uh, go to these extremes, and who maybe will, by the end of a century, have made a little colony on Mars. In, a, in another podcast, we've, I've spoken with Libby Jackson about the role of funding, actually, in the UK Space Agency. Very interesting to hear your differing view. Do you believe that public funding should be invested in space at all? Of course, and I think, uh, uh, as I hope I make clear, that uh, space is very important for uh, environmental monitoring, weather forecasting and all that. Britain actually has a very successful record 
in pioneering small satellites. Um, uh, uh, Sir Michael Sweeting is a really great man who really pioneered this worldwide. And so we have a, a record of this and these types of satellites are crucially important. In fact, there's a, a company in the US uh, co-founded by a British scientist called uh, Planet Lab, and that has launched, it launched this on one Indian rocket, 70 small spacecraft to look at the Earth, and its mantra is to look at every tree in the world every day, which you can do with that, and that's, of course, hugely important, and uh, for surveillance and all the rest of it, change in land use. So that's just one example of all the useful things you can do. And I think we should contrast those sorts of uses of, of space, and which are very practical and important to us all, with human spaceflight, which I feel quite differently about. So leads me to my, my next question. What role do you see robotics and AI and digital technologies in particular playing in space exploration? Well, of course, they're absolutely crucial. I think here on Earth, we know of the um, benefits of robots, etc., cetera, um, and they have some downsides. But I would say that in space, their benefits over humans are clearly huge. The, the downsides are le less important. So if we look ahead, I imagine that um, uh, robots will be used to um, explore the solar system. Uh, if you think of what's happened on Mars already, um, probes have been sent to Mars to trundle around Mars, and uh, they can now uh, navigate and um, avoid obstacles as they, as they drive around. Um, but of course, they can't yet do what a geologist could do. But within 10 or 20 years, they'll be able to do even that. So there'll be even less case for sending people into space. And to send people as far as Mars is hugely expensive because you've got to uh, not only keep them safe, worry about radiation dosage, but give them uh, a year's worth of food to take on the journey and bring them back. So that's why that's so hugely expensive, whereas a robot doesn't need to be brought back. And of course, uh, it doesn't need any maintenance on the journey. So there's a huge advantage in depending on robots for that sort of thing. And also another possible benefit of space, apart from these uh, small spacecraft in low Earth orbit, which I mentioned, is to perhaps build um, very large structures, large solar energy collectors, huge telescope dishes, uh, very, very lightweight under zero gravity in space. And um, these could be assembled by robotic fabricators from uh, smaller units sent up into orbit. You don't need to have people. Uh, you won't need to have people to uh, assemble structures up there. Fair to say that we'll see a lot of innovation and technological advancement over the next few years and next few decades. But your career itself, Martin, has been quite extensive. What's the greatest innovation you've seen to date? Well, it's, it's interesting that innovation goes in in bursts, things develop fast and then they stagnate. And of course, in the last 20 years, the uh, innovation of information technology, smartphones and uh, enabling the internet and all that has been crucial. And of course, we are so dependent on that. For instance, think what would have happened if the internet had failed during the shutdown of the pandemic, when we depended on it even more than usual. So um, that's been the most uh, important development. Uh, uh, stemming from greater miniaturization, from the fact that you can now have 10 billion chips on something the size of a fingernail, which is amazing technology, uh, which allows us to have in our smartphones so much computing power, etc. So, so that's been the most exciting development. And of course, it's uh, percolated worldwide. But I think some people say this exponential growth is going to increase. I think in most of these technologies, there's a spurt of growth which has been hugely impressive. 
um, in the case of IT immunization, which may level off. Let me give you two other examples. Passenger flight. It was 50 years between the first transatlantic flight by Orcock and White in 1919 and the first flight of a jumbo jet in, I think, 1969 or thereabouts. And now, 50 years after that, we still have jumbo jets to save. So there, there was a big change over 50 years, but uh, and because of not just technological limitations, but lack of demand for further progress, um, space aviation has sort of leveled off in a sense. So the, the, the details have changed, but the basic picture hasn't. And of course, if we think of human space flight, the high point of that was the Apollo moon landing more than 50 years ago. And that's uh, because it was hugely expensive, but human space flight was um, funded by the Americans at up to 4% of their entire federal budget because of the space race with the Russians. When they won that race to the moon, then of course they cut back. NASA gets about 0.6% uh, now um, for its entire program. Um, and uh, for that reason, the high point of human space flights was like 50 years ago. If they'd continued to spend at the same rate, uh, then there'd be footprints on Mars long before today. But they very sensibly decided not to go on at that extreme level. Um, and that, that's why, although many hundreds of people have been into space since then, they've nearly all been in the International Space Station and just in low Earth orbit near the Earth. So th that's just a long way of saying that most technologies have a spurt of rapid change and then level off. I think there will be, I, I would guess, big biological changes in the next 10 or 20 years, genetic modification and things of that kind, um, but at the same time, the, um, the iPhone 23 may not be too different from the iPhone 13. We'll see. Uh, you mentioned there the space race and the, the first footsteps on the moon being over 50 years old. And so, too, is the Outer Space Treaty. Is that something that you think needs updating or revising? Well, of course, it, 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 it does need revising. I mean, I think, going back to what I said earlier, um, there do need to be uh, regulations um, to ensure that low Earth orbit doesn't get polluted and there are no collisions. So there should be severe sanctions on uh, those who, who are careless and uh, lead to their satellites colliding, etc., because that's an almost irreversible, at least long-term, despoilation of the space environment. So uh, th that's something which we need. I think we should probably, for the moment, think of um, humans going to Mars as being like the Wild West, which doesn't mean rough regulation, and they'll be away from the regulation, and they will use all the techniques of cyborg um, and uh, genetic modification, which we will rightly regulate on Earth. There's an intermediate case of things like um, mining the moon and uh, mining asteroids, which are talked about. It's not clear whether these will ever be economically sensible, but if they do, um, then um, there has to be some legal framework. I think at the moment, the framework is rather like the um, framework for the um, high seas, where anything you, you fish there is yours, as it were. Uh, but we may also need to learn lessons from the Antarctic, which has been kept uh, um, as a, a sort of uh, wilderness with very strong constraints, which have been um, obeyed by all nations. And some people think we ought to impose those sorts of constraints on uh, the moon and planets. I mean, I think if we discovered that there was some sort of life already on Mars, I think there'd be a strong case for having regulations so that that ecology or potential ecology is not disturbed. Otherwise, and on the moon, I think we can be somewhat more relaxed.
I see the spaces and the solar system as the greatest common that we have to consider how we can work yeah. in collaboration. That's right. Mm-hmm. That will take international cooperation across different nation states. And there's obviously new emergence in space exploration. China and India are probably the, yes. the most yeah. well known. What role do you think, therefore, international kind of governments and, and national governments coming together can play in helping to create that regulatory environment? Well, I think we're going to, to need more generally more international bodies, rather like the uh, World Health Organization and the International Atomic Energy Agency for terrestrial issues like, like energy and monitoring, CO2 reductions um, and things of that kind. But also, as you say, for this purpose, to uh, ensure that there are agreed regulations and that there are some sanctions against governments that, uh, that violate them. In particular, if they cause debris in, in low Earth orbit. Do you think we will see people on Mars in the next, what is a reasonable timescale? I would say by the end of the century, there will be some of these uh, private adventurers on Mars. If governments put effort into it, uh, then well, there could have been people on Mars already if they continue with the Apollo level of expenditure, um, and there could be within 20 years, if it's a big priority. Uh, the Americans are talking about going back to the moon, and the Chinese also are. And um, if, for instance, the Chinese wanted to uh, do a grand prestige project, they could, I'm sure, go to Mars within 20 years. They may feel that um, if they want to assert their parity with the United States, they shouldn't just do what the Americans did 50 years ago. Maybe go to the moon. They should take another great leap forward and go to Mars. And um, they might do this. But on the other hand, uh, they might decide to use their amazing technology to um, use space in a more practical way. And what sort of practical ways do you envision space being used? Well, I mean, we've discussed some of them, but I think building large structures in space um, and even perhaps. As uh, Jeff Bezos was, I think, wisely said, possibly um, exporting some industrial processes in, into space. That, that would be worthwhile if, uh, if uh, we can make the Earth more garden-like, as it were, by exporting dirty industries into space. That would be good. At the moment, uh, the economics plainly don't work out, but one day they might. And that would be a, a good thing. It's a very interesting ethical debate we could have there on whether or not it's fair for humans to start you know we, we hear about not on my backyard and this would be literally oh, right. not, on, not on my planet but of course it, that depends crucially on the question of uh, is there anyone else out there or not and do you think there is well i, I just don't know i think uh, um, we know that there's no uh, advanced life in our solar system but we have no idea about whether there could be life elsewhere um, and uh, this is, in fact, one of the most exciting areas in astronomy at the moment um, for two reasons. The first is that uh, we now know for sure that most of the stars in the sky are orbited by retinues of planets, just like the sun is orbited by the Earth and the other familiar planets. And so in our Milky Way, there are a billion or more planets like the Earth. We don't know how life gets started or how it evolves. It could be such a rare fluke that it's only happened in this one place, namely the Earth where we are, or it could be that it's happened in many places, we don't know. Um, but that's one of the most important questions in science, and certainly when people know I'm an astronomer, then 
the question, are we alone, is clearly what, what most people want to know. And the answer is we, we, just, we just don't know. If we found any evidence of, of life, then that would tell us something we don't yet know, which is that the origin of life, the thing we don't yet understand, wasn't just a rare fluke. Because if it had happened twice in our single planetary system, independently, then it must be something which would have happened in a billion other places. So detecting even simple life on Enceladus or Europa would um, tell us straight away that life is widespread in the cosmos. It would be almost egotistical of us to assume that there's no other life out there. Yes, uh, but of course, although we're not the culmination of evolution, uh, future evolution will be different because up to now it's been Darwinian selection, of course, but um, future evolution will be what I like to call secular intelligent design, because it may be sort of a humans doing genetic modification or maybe downloading ourselves into electronic form and then doing the design. It's a fascinating thought, and we could spend hours on that. My own company has been doing some work on the ethics of artificial intelligence, so I can see oh, yeah. certainly resonate with that. That's a serious issue, of course, um, uh, here on Earth about well, I've, I've myself written a book called um, On the Future, which let me plug because it's just out in paperback and it's translated into Arabic. And this, this discusses all these issues. And in particular, I do discuss some of these ethical issues of AI. I mean, the, um, the arg one argument is that um, even if it seems that AI can make reliable judgments, then, of course, it's got built-in biases because it's learned from uh, samples of what humans do. In my book, there are a couple of chapters on my, my main nightmare about the future, which is that technology is far more empowering to an extent that even an individual or a small group can now cause, by accident or by design, a catastrophe which can cascade globally. I'm thinking of engineering a virus um, or a massive cyber attack on the electricity grid, things of that kind. I see this as a future social problem, which is very intractable indeed, because there are three things we want to preserve if possible. One is privacy, the other is security, and the other is liberty. And I think we can't have all three anymore, because uh, when um, the village idiot could just have an impact in his village, uh, then we could tolerate them. But if they can influence a whole global village, then it's very different. And so I think the risks of a few individuals causing global catastrophes is not negligible. And I think um, in order to avoid that, we're going to have to give up on our privacy. Lord Martin, what would you say to a young person that's looking to either get into astronomy or potentially a career following in your footsteps? Well, I, I would say that if, if you want a career in science, pick a subject where things are advancing fast um, and not stagnating because the technology goes, goes through, through bursts and then plateaus for a bit. That's true of sciences. So pick a science that's advancing fast. And also in the process, learn as much as you can about a variety of subjects and learn a few basic skills. And uh, computing is, of course, a basic skill which uh, uh, people need in so many walks of life. So uh, uh, many of the things you will learn doing astronomy um, are basic physics and computing. Uh, which are clearly essential if you want to understand the things out there, um, but they're equally essential for other, other jobs. So I, I would say that uh, astronomy is a motivation to learn things which will be useful, even if for the rest of your life, astronomy remains a hobby uh, rather than uh, a job. Professor Lord Martin, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Very good to speak with you. 
Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.